0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5, we are going to be there this morning. We are in week 5 of our series here in um, in, uh, looking through the book, walking through the book of Esther. And one of the things that you'll notice in the story today is that the pace of the story really starts to slow right down. And so from, from chapters 1 to chapters 5, we cover eight or nine years of history there from when Queen Vashti is first uh, sent away, no longer to be queen anymore to when uh, the edict from uh, King Ahasuerus goes out. There's about eight or nine years have passed between there. And then we get to chapter five, and the author seems to really just like slam on the brakes. And instead instead of operating by years at a time, or even months, we're operating by days and hours. And even next week, as we'll see, as we go through Esther six and seven, we'll be operating in, sp- in spaces of minutes at a time. So the, the pace completely slows down today as we get right into the the hairy, the nitty-gritty parts of the story of Esther. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Father, we want to spend the next few minutes entrusting ourselves to you and your word, Father. We want to open ourselves up to you and ask you, Lord, to enter our hearts and poke around and Reveal to us, Lord, where we need to submit once again to you, where we need to bow the knee, Lord, where, where sin has been lingering. Father, where we have strayed from you, where where we have grown cold towards you, Lord, we want to submit ourselves again to your spirit. That He would come and highlight those things and Work in us and change us, Lord. And we ask, Father, we, we do ask, Lord, that we will grow in this way. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had your day ruined by one frustrating event? Like you've had been having a really great day, everything's going great, and then something happens and you, it just seems to ruin your day. A number of years ago, uh, Kirsty and I boarded a plane on our way home from a lovely trip. We'd been to New Zealand and then Melbourne, and uh, we found out in this final trip home that this flight had different rules to the previous two flights. That is, it had different rules around the weight limits of our baggage. And instead of being kind of the other two flights, it wasn't an issue. This flight, it was a cheaper airline, and uh, they bumped our price up for an, as an extra $220 to fly home that day, mainly because of my suitcase. And it was one of those things that, like, we'd had a wonderful holiday, it was really great, we had seen friends, we had seen family, it was really wonderful. And just to end that, I'm not going to say it ruined our holiday, but it definitely did leave us with a bit of a sour taste in our mouth. We know what it's like to have a, a great day and then something happened that just kind of ruins it. And if we're honest, we might admit that sometimes we can be a little bit fragile about such things. So just for, for instance, again, like I'd finished writing the sermon on Thursday and then somebody actually gave uh, me a, a gift voucher and uh, I went out Thursday night to use this gift voucher at the shops and Thursday night shopping and somewhere in between picking it up off my desk at home and getting to the shops, that gift card fell out of my pocket. And I lost it. It's completely gone. And I retraced my steps, went to the previous shops that I'd been to. I'd retraced my steps, driving all over the place, looking at car parks. The gift card was gone. And like that wasn't, like it was a gift to me, right? I didn't earn it. It wasn't something that I worked really hard for. But I was suddenly incredibly entitled to that gift card. And I got very precious about the fact, like, why me? Like, why is this happening? What have I done, God, to do this? We can be a bit fragile, can't we, about some things? Maybe that's just me. Today, we're going to see how uh, we're going to see a bit of a time where Haman, who's one of the main characters in the story of Esther, we're going to see one of Haman's best days ever get totally ruined, and he gets pretty fragile about it. So, just to recap. All of the Jews in the known world, this is in the story of Esther, all of the Jews in the known world were at risk of being killed and destroyed and annihilated, all because this guy Haman, the the second most powerful man in the kingdom, had been deeply offended by the insubordination of a Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai just wouldn't bow down to him, wouldn't bow down when everybody else would bow down to Haman. And so Haman convinced King Ahasuerus to sign this order, to sign this edict, to basically annihilate, destroy, bring to an end all of God's people in all of the provinces in, uh, in Persia. So the order went out and the whole city was thrown into confusion. Lots of weeping, lots of, uh, lots of people lamenting over this. And so Mordecai had to then convince his cousin Esther, who just so happened to be the queen of Persia, to go and appeal directly to the king himself, to appeal to him personally, to reverse the edict. Now, this was risky for Esther. There was a high chance that she could be uh, be actually killed for this. But she fasted for three days, and she resolved to go and see the king. And that's where we left off last week. And this is where we pick up the story this week in chapter 5, verse 1. It says that on the third day, after the three days of fasting, Esther dressed in her royal clothing, that's literally she put on royalty, and she stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. So she's inside this inner courtyard of the palace facing uh, towards the palace. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. There's this emphasis on the royalty there, that this is a risky thing because she is presenting herself before royalty. She was doing something by standing there before the king uninvited. She was doing something that was basically illegal and could potentially result in her execution, standing before the king uninvited. You weren't allowed to do that. The only thing that would save her is if the king would extend his golden scepter towards her, thereby receiving her. And that's precisely what happened. Verse 2, as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So on this day, Esther found favor with the king. And friends, as we consider one another and we're urged to pray for one another, uplift one another's needs to God in prayer, praying for one another, praying for favor for one another is a good thing. If you don't know what to pray for someone, just pray for favor with them, favor with their boss, favor with their neighbors, favor with their family, that God's favor would be on that. It's just a wonderful moment where, for whatever reason, in that day, in that moment, Esther found favor with King Ahasuerus. Verse 3. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to the half of the kingdom, will be given to you. Now, it's probably unlikely that the king was actually prepared to hand over half of his kingdom. This is more likely an idiom used to express great favor towards someone, similar to the blank check that uh, that Ahasuerus wrote for Haman uh, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that. They just said, go and do as you please. And it's at this stage that we might expect Esther to plead personally for the sake of her people. She's just been virtually handed a blank check, and this is the moment to cash it in. That would make sense, right? The king is ready to hand out favors. She's got a big favor to ask. This is perfect timing. You can't get a better setup than this. But that's not what happens. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. Now this might have us scratching our heads. Why not ask for deliverance for her people then and there? And we could speculate why. Maybe maybe she got cold feet. Maybe she was biding her time. Maybe she was trying to, to honor the king just a little bit more to increase the chances of him granting her request. But the truth is that, is that we're not actually told why. That doesn't seem to be an important reason to the author. We're just simply not told why she does this. But what we've learned so far in the story is that God rules over all things, including the timing of all things, and God's timing is perfect. We've been learning that, and we're going to see the precision of God's timing in the next few weeks. The king said, verse 5, the king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Scene change. We go, we go to the banquet, verse 6. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to, the half, of, even to half the kingdom will be done. Similar, like identical, uh, identical offer as before. And we're thinking, okay, this must be the moment that she's been waiting for. Esther's about to ask the king to reverse this edict, and we'll finally see what happens. She's going to ask him, and then we'll see what he says. Verse 7, Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request... So far, so good. She's honoring the kings. This is going to the way where she's about to ask the king this huge favor. Now's the perfect time. But she says, May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow, I will do as the king has asked. Now, if we were, if we were reading this for the first time, we'd be pulling our hairs out, hair out by now. She's just had a second chance to ask a huge favor of the king, but she instead invites them to a second feast. It's kind of like when you're watching the footy and you see a player drop the ball and you're like, oh, that's, that's unfortunate, and then they pass it to him again and he drops the ball again and you're thinking, please don't pass him the ball again. He needs to be off the field, like he's not having a good day. That's kind of what's going on. We, we don't know what Esther's strategy is, is here, but we can say this, there are no wasted parts in God's plan. There are no wasted parts in God's plan. There are no wasted ingredients in God's recipes. There are no offcuts sitting in the bin next to God's workbench. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. How many things? Does Paul say most things? Generally things? No, all things. There's no such thing as a wasted moment with God. There are so many things in my life that I wish I could go back and redo. There are so many things, so many decisions that I've made that I wish I could go back in time and decide the opposite. There are, there are so many squandered opportunities where I could have invited someone to church, but I, was, I wasn't brave, I wasn't courageous, I was a coward and, and whimmed out. I could have shared the gospel with some people and, and decided that I, I'd rather preserve my reputation with them than than risk it for the reputation of Christ and we might look at these as moments of cowardice or sin and, and they might be, but with Jesus there is grace, his timing is perfect, and there is no such thing as a wasted day now I'm not at all saying that Esther is making a mistake here we've been, we've been really kind of thinking about esther's character I don't think that she's making a mistake here so much. I actually think that she's playing the king like a boss. A lot can happen in 24 hours. And as we read on, we're going to see that a lot does happen in 24 hours. If the delay in time has a scratch in our heads, let us just be reminded there there are no delays with God. God has numbered the days of evil having their way. And can we just be encouraged by that? God has numbered evil's days. God has numbered Satan's days. He's numbered them. He knows exactly what's going on. There is no such thing as a wasted day with God. So from verse 9, then we get a bit of scene change. The focus shifts from Esther and King Ahasuerus to Haman and Mordecai. This is after the, after the feast. The feast has just happened. It's been great. They've been full of wine. Everything's wonderful. Haman, at the end of the feast, he's been feeling very, very honored by Esther. And then at the very end of the feast, he finds out he's invited to another feast the next day. So verse 9, that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. He was on top of the world. He and no one else had the honor of being invited to Esther's banquet for the king. Apart from the king, he's the only person. This last week had proven to be maybe one of Haman's best weeks ever. He had become the second most powerful man in the empire, which likely would have happened previous to that. But it wasn't just because the king promoted him, but because he had proven that he had the king around his finger. He got the king to send out this order, order and this edict. Like, I wonder if he, what, he was questioning how much power, how much sway, how much influence he had over the king. And in that week, he had realized, wow, the king listens to me. He'd be given a blank check to flex his power as he wished. And now he had been honored by the queen, not once, but now twice in these special banquets. Everything, everything was coming up Haman. However, his joyful and spirited strut... Was short-lived. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't have a line in this in this chapter, but his actions speak clearly and loudly. Just consider Mordecai's action here in light of everything that has happened. Earlier, as per custom, Mordecai hadn't bowed down to Haman when he had walked through the, the king's gate or walked in that public area. And as a result, this order and this edict had gone out. You'd think that Mordecai would have learned his lesson by now. You'd think that, Haman, that Mordecai would be thinking, next time Haman comes, I'm not going to ruin this for everybody else. I'm going to do exactly as I should. At least you'd be thinking, if he's not going to do that, at least you'd be thinking, hey, Mordecai, please don't make this situation any worse. Like, I don't know how, but Mordecai, please don't make this any worse. But he doesn't. Instead of rising or changing his posture, he continues unchanged. Haman's presence still has no reverberation in Mordecai's soul. He just doesn't faze him. He doesn't tremble in fear in Haman's presence. He knows that Haman can take away his life. But he also knows that's all he can do. That's the only power that he wields over him. There is a greater one who wields greater power, and Mordecai is right to fear God and not man. If you remember, Haman thought it was repugnant. It was, te- it was a terrible idea to just punish Mordecai alone. Like That just wouldn't be enough. That would be a- an act of injustice if Mordecai was the only one who got punished for Mordecai's sin. I'm going to have to wipe out, to, to really make sure that everybody gets the message, I'm going to have to kill and annihilate and destroy all of God's people, was Haman's thought. I wonder if his expectations, after throwing everything at him, he threw everything at Mordecai, I wonder if Haman's expectations was, next time I see Haman, he is going to be kissing my feet. He is going to be so low. He is going to be so, this is going to be so great. And I wonder even as, as Haman, this is a speculation, but I wonder if as Haman left, left that feast, if he was just walking past Mordecai thinking, okay, here we go. This is going to be a delicious moment. I've just come from this great feast honored, where I was honored by the queen and Mordecai, he will, have had, he, the, he will have learned his lesson by now and this is going to be great. He's going to bow down and everything's going to come up Me again, but it doesn't happen. Instead, Mordecai doesn't do a thing. He threw his best at Mordecai, but Mordecai was utterly unfazed. It's like in Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi, easily the worst of the whole saga, worst movie of the whole saga. Kylo Ren has literally dozens of at ats at his disposal. And walking towards the the front line there, in walks Luke Skywalker, facing off this huge ground force. And Kylo Ren says, I want every gun we have to fire on that man. And the at-ats, they open fire, and it's unrelenting as Kylo Ren screams menacingly, more, more, until enough is enough, and the dust settles, and Luke Skywalker is still standing there. And if you've seen the movie, what does Luke Skywalker do? Brushes off his shoulder with a big grin on his face. That's Mordecai in this moment. He's looking like Haman is throwing everything at Mordecai, and Mordecai's like, What else he got? What else he got? This is a boss move. And we would do well to hold the same kind of posture as Mordecai in the face of evil. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians We have this treasure in clay jars. So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. No, that because Jesus, we have died with Christ, we will also rise with Christ. The devil can throw his worst at us, but we will not be separated from Jesus. Sure, we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. What's happening around us might perplex us, but we have no reason to despair. They can persecute us all they want, but God will never abandon us. You might get knocked to the ground, but we're not going to be destroyed. Our lives could even be lost, but we've already died with Christ. So Satan, what else have you got? And make no mistake, we're not talking about people here in terms of the enemies of God's people, but the ongoing spiritual battle with God's people are going out with a proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel and the dark and evil forces of Satan want nothing more than to destroy, to distort, to disfigure, to distract, and to discourage God's people. Paul says in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And in the end, God will win. That's what we've got. That's what we know. That's the bigger picture that Christians. If you're here and you're a Christian, that's the bigger picture that you should have in your mind always. Mordecai's actions, they send tremors through Haman's soul. His joy and good spirits were quickly replaced with rage, but he doesn't let it show. Verse 10: Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. I need my support, Karami. I need my peeps, I need my entourage. Then verse 11 then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank and over the other officials and all the other, and the royal staff. Just consider how vapid and vain Haman is. This is all about him. This is is Ron Burgundy standing in front of the mirror saying, hey everyone, come and see how good I look. Like Haman loves Haman. This, This tells us what's at the core of Haman's life. What truly motivates him, it's him. Haman is really into Haman. Nobody loves anything more than Haman loves Haman. And this is what is driving this man. He is at the center of his universe and he needs everyone around him. To be on the Haman train. You see, Haman's struggle is what the Bible calls idolatry. An idol is something that we go to for our sense of mean and our sense of purpose in life. And for Haman, he, he, what he went to for his sense of mean and purpose seems to be status. What he needs all the time is for his status to be higher than everybody else's. He loves that. And what Mordecai did there was not acknowledge him. And, and just by one person. One man, not giving Haman the status that he so desired, he dissolved, he disintegrated Haman's whole self, Haman's sense of meaning. An idol is something other than God that we think will give us life. If someone was to say, my work is my life, they're saying my job is what gives me meaning and purpose. If someone says, my kids are my life, they're saying, my kids are what gives me my meaning and purpose in life. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard or loving your children intensely, not at all. But it becomes idolatry when 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 it goes beyond that and we believe that life is not possible unless we have that thing. And so we simply must have it and we'll do anything to get it. Think of the man who says, if I don't get married... I'm nothing. Or a woman who says, if I don't have kids, then I'm nothing. Or a man who says, without a good career, I'm nothing. Or a woman who says, if I'm not beautiful, I'm nothing. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it everything. For Haman, it was status. And the reason why the Bible forbids idolatry is twofold. Firstly, Because God alone, God alone can provide life. No one else, nothing else can. Only God can give us the life that we so desire. And to worship an idol is to reject God. Everyone struggles with this. Every one of us here struggles with this. And the question is never if we worship something, but what we worship. Secondly, worshipping idols will only leave us feeling more vulnerable than before, more empty than before. It promises us that if we can get that thing, if we can get status, if we can get beauty, if we can get money, if we can get that career, if we can get whatever it is, then we will be happy, we'll be more filled than before, but it actually doesn't deliver on that. It never delivers. In fact, an idol can only ever deliver what it promises us to deliver, what it promises to deliver us from. It won't take away the emptiness. It'll simply hollow us out even more. If you worship money, you'll always feel poor. If you worship things and stuff, you'll never have enough. If you worship status, you'll always feel like a nobody. If you worship influence, you'll always feel forgotten. If you worship your career, you'll never be happy with where you are. If you worship marriage, no one will ever be good enough. If you worship your children, they will always disappoint you. If you worship beauty, you'll always feel ugly. And at the base of every single idol is actually self-worship. It's putting ourselves on the throne. The goal of idolatry is always to get us to the center of the universe. It's to replace God on the throne with us. And this is how it's always been. Always been, even back to the the garden. In creation, if we look in Genesis, in creation, everything is good because it was created by a good God. And God is the one who calls everything good. Then the serpent came along to tempt Eve to take the fruit in the forbidden tree. And it says in Genesis 3:6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Now, a couple of things here. The woman, Eve, was putting herself in the place of God. She was now the one deciding what was good for her. Who cares what, that God had forbidden it? She knew better. She knew more about what was good for her than what God did. And not only that, she was the beneficiary of the goodness that she desired. This was about her. The, the food was good for her to eat. It was delightful for her to look at. It was desirable for her to gain wisdom. And because of these things, she rejected God's law instead opting to obey her desires. Idolatry always has us as the beneficiaries. When we see a person or an object or a thing, we, we, sorry, we see in an object or a person or a thing a means of fast-tracking our way to the center of the universe, and so we take it. We decide, I need that. If I want to have meaning, if I want to have purpose in my life, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to get that. I'm going to sacrifice to have it. I'm going to do anything I can to get it. I'm going to set aside my family, set aside my health, set aside. I'm going to make sacrifices. I've got to get that. And that's what worship is. We're making sacrifices to have this thing that we think is going to bring us joy and happiness. And we're all worshipers. No one here is not a worshiper. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might even think of yourself as an atheist. I'd like for you to consider that maybe your worship practices are far more developed than you think. See, Haman's idol was status. And regardless of the status he received, it was never enough for him. The king had promoted him. But it wasn't enough when one Jew wouldn't bow down to him. So he flexed. I've got to destroy all of them. It wasn't enough that the queen honored him. All it took was for one Jew not to be moved by him. And he was thrown into a rage. He had to go back and, and, and gather his family and tell them about how great he was just so that he could be filled up. But even that, it wasn't enough. An idol will never strengthen us, but it will make us feel as fragile as ever. See, Haman needed status. He needed to have that rise in status in his family's eyes to, to dilute the status uh, that, that he couldn't gain from Mordecai you can tell what your idol is by by thinking through what do i go to when the chips are down like if you if you've had a rough day do you find do you go to the shed and look at all the fishing rods or do you go do you go look at all your stuff your idol could be stuff or maybe if you've had a really hard day do you go and do you go and uh, jump on the couch and watch TV and just binge TV and you just do that maybe you scroll For ages, your idol could be comfort. After you get some discouragement, do you you quickly post something on Instagram just to get the likes? Like your your idol there could be status there. When life is difficult, do you open the laptop up and just get to work to get something done? Your idol could be career. What do you run to for your pick-me-up? This is what Haman did. He recounted to them all the things that gave him status, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 12. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Now pay attention to verse 13. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. You can identify an idol if you need more and more of it, but it provides less And less of a hit. It promises satisfaction, but it has none to give. And this is the contrast that we're getting between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai, it seems, has his eyes set, his sight set on the eternal God of the universe, and it's made him bulletproof. Haman has his sight set on himself, and he's as fragile as a porcelain doll. He's got everything, and it's completely unsatisfied. Everything was wonderful for Haman, and he couldn't enjoy an ounce of it. And I want us to to lay this contrast between Mordecai and Haman. I want us to lay this over the way that we might think of our interaction with the world. What would it take to become bulletproof like Mordecai? What would it take to not have to rise or tremble in fear, The kind of persecution that that comes towards us. This world is, is Haman's world. The world that we live in is the world of Haman. It says, put yourself first. Make yourself number one. Make yourself the center. You're worth it. Discover who you are. Celebrate who you are. Become who you want to be. Treat yourself. This is all about you. And we marinate in that day by day. Day in, day out. And may we as Christians have the spiritual eyes to see this world with this kind of clarity? May we see the spiritual reality behind our culture of consumption and comfort and convenience? May we have visual clarity on what this is doing to our hearts and may we rise above it. How do we get there though? What is the the antidote to this to the poison of this self-centered world? How, How do we stop bowing down to idols? And worshipping ourselves. The answer is not actually in just trying really hard not to. That won't get us very far at all. Our hearts are wired to worship. So the answer lies not in stopping worship, but by increasing our worship of someone or something far greater, of someone far greater. When our focus is so heavily drawn towards ourselves through these things, that we, uh, we think to ourselves that these things are going to give us meaning and purpose, what we need is something far more wonderful to captivate our eyes, something far more wonderful to captivate our attention. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life.